here. This may be, uh, you may have been here from the beginning. Some of you predate me, but this may be your first or second time here. And you may be here because uh, you're new to town and wanted to see if uh, you might could figure out where you're going to be going to church, if that interests you. It could be that um, someone brought you here almost against your wishes. And we hope that this will be as pleasant, uh, you know, temporary servitude as, as possible. But, uh, no, but seriously, I, you know, we, we, we pray about these Sunday mornings that God will be at work wherever people are. And we never make assumptions that everybody in the room is in the same place. Really, no one in the room is in the exact same place. So whether you're coming here with a lot of joy, a lot of confidence in the kind of things that we're talking about and saying, or whether this is very new to you, or whether maybe you had warmed up to it and then you, you've grown cold, uh, we're, just, we're very glad you're here. And we're praying that God is at work in our midst, meaning that He's at work in your heart and mine. If you are visiting, we're studying through the last book of the Bible. It's Revelation, not Revelations, Revelation. I was in a clothing store just a few days ago, and I heard a guy pontificating in the clothing store about the book of Revelations, and I just, I just was just agonizing inside. So um, be good to me, please, and call it Revelation. But we're in Revelation chapter 19, and we're going to be starting in verse 11. If you don't have a Bible here, you can just follow the text in the order of worship. I want you to think about this. One of the most confident figures that you bump into in the New Testament scriptures became one of the most uncertain. One of the most confident figures that you encounter in the New Testament scriptures became at one point one of the most uncertain. Who am I talking about? John the Baptist. Now, just so we're on the same page, I'm gonna, I might refer to John as I'm preaching through Revelation. Different John. It's John the Apostle. John the Apostle wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation. Uh, John the Baptist is a figure that you find in the Gospels. And he was sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. And when John the Baptist showed up in the wilderness, no one had to wonder what he thought about things. Very forthright. And he said things like, uh, speaking about the Messiah who's coming, his winnowing fork is in his hands. And he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. I mean, it was the message of, he is here and it is about to happen. And then when Jesus comes to be baptized by John the Baptist... John points him out and says, that's the one. That's the man that I've been talking about. He IDs him and says, behold the Lamb of God. So then everybody sits back to watch the ministry of Jesus because he's got his winnowing fork in his hand. You know, and the axe is already laid through the trees. And they watch him and he teaches. And he heals. And he loves people. And he doesn't kill any Romans. And this was so unsettling to John the Baptist that uh, in the Gospels, there's the account that he's, he's in prison. He's imprisoned by an evil king as he's trying to do the right thing. He sends a message by one of his disciples to Jesus, and the message is, are you really the one, or were we waiting for someone else? Isn't that incredible? Just confident, 
He's the one. You better get your hearts ready, you brood of snakes. And then it, he reaches a point where I don't, I don't know who you are. Now, how did that happen? And that's worth asking. And long story short, I'm telling you this because this has everything to do with this passage in Revelation. John the Baptist was a prophet. In fact, Jesus said, there's never been a greater prophet than John. Not Isaiah, not Elijah, no one's bigger than John. And John saw, because God enabled him to see these realities, realities about judgment and a powerful, conquering king coming on behalf of God's people. He saw it, and so... When he ID'd Jesus as being the Messiah, he kind of braced himself to go, okay, here it comes. And he did not know something that we do. And we can't fault him because we wouldn't have known this either. He didn't know there were going to be two comings of the Messiah. He thought when the Messiah comes, he comes. And then those things happen. And the Messiah showed up, and he heals, and he teaches, and he loves, and he serves. Now, here's what I want to say. This text is a vision and revelation of what John saw. And whether you're a Christian or not, if you're someone who's here this morning and you watch the news and you hear terrible things that happen to your friends and the lives of people you care about, and you say to yourself, why doesn't God do something about the evil in the world? If God exists, why doesn't He do something about the suffering and the horrible things in this world? If you're someone who has felt that or said that, this text is for you. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured 
and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, we would say with, uh, with the prophet that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. These are stark words, and as always, we, we just need your help. Everyone in the room needs your help. So please help us to hear you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. I alluded to what I'm about to say at the beginning of uh, the series on Revelation, but I want to bring it back up. This is not um, speculation, what I'm about to tell you. This is, this is a tested historic fact. Uh, around the time that Paul wrote the, the letter to the Romans, what we call the, the book of Romans in the New Testament, he wrote that about 57 A.D. It's going to be important later on. And uh, when he wrote that, the emperor, the governing authority in, in Rome was Nero. And you, you may or may not have heard about what Nero was like. Nero was absolutely atrocious. And even by what we would call pagan standards, he was regarded as a, a monster. In fact, um, he was called by some of his you know, peers, not in his presence, he was alluded to as a beast. One of the beastly things that he did and uh, for which church history uh, remembers him is that, at least on one occasion, he took Christians, men and women, and he, while they were alive, he had them covered in inflammable tar pitch, and he had them attached to tall poles and lit. And they formed the, the evening lighting at garden parties. And now, and I've mentioned that before, but, you know, I thought about that, and, and I'm not saying this to be funny, believe me, uh, it's, it's, there's nothing about it as funny, but you think about the difference between that sort of setting and our setting, because let's say that you're here, and you're, you're a single person, and, um, and let's say, now I don't assume this about everybody, but let's say that you are a professing Christian, and let's say that you would love to, to marry someone who's a Christian. So that maybe that's a desire in your heart this morning is I would love to meet uh, another Christian person that I'm like-minded with and marry that person. Think about how different that would be in Nero's day. If you were a Christian woman or a Christian man and you were not yet married, would, would you really want to fall in love with somebody who professes faith in Jesus Christ if that might happen to them? Or if you're, if you're in this room and you're a parent and you're a professing Christian, then uh, it's very likely, I would hope, that something that you feel very strongly about a child is, I really hope that this child grows up to love and follow Jesus. But you think about how different that would look if you were in that setting to think, 
Do I want my child on the pole? And, you know, we've said this in different ways and come at this from different directions, but these first century Christians, were ex- they found a gospel that's so wonderful that they would follow Jesus when that might be the outcome. And people who read this book that was circulated first among seven churches, they heard and saw things that were so wonderful, it sustained them going to Nero's gardens. It sustained them going into the Roman arena when the lions are let out. It sustained them putting their head down on the literal, not metaphorical, literal chopping block. And here's the thing I want us to see this morning is that when Christ first came, He came as the servant. In fact, He was the fulfillment of these prophecies in Isaiah about there's this one who's going to come who's the servant, the servant of the Lord. And He came and He just gave His life away. He gave His life away relationally. He gave His life away financially. And he, he gave his life away physiologically by physically being killed. And he fell under the very wrath of God. And we talk about that all the time in this church. The first coming. The good news that because he took the wrath of God, we don't have to. Because he lived the perfect life that I can't, I won't be judged for all my failures in my life if I trust in him. But what we're looking at this morning is the second coming. Because I I really want us to to try to get our hearts, get this into our hearts and our hearts around it, is that the good news, the gospel, is not that there will never be a judgment. That's not the good news. And believe me, if you are living if you saw the quote on the front of the bulletin, if you are living in a war-torn area, if you are living in places where real things like genocide happen, the thought of there never, ever being an accounting and and a judgment would be deflating. The gospel is not there'll never be a judgment. The gospel is people like us never have to fall under it if Christ is our Savior. But when He comes, He comes to save His own and to judge his enemies. Now, in this text, when he shows up, all these names show up. One of the names was the one that I kind of wanted to preach on the most, but you can't preach on it because it won't tell you what the name is. Did you catch that? It says he has a name, but no one knows what it is, so I can't preach on it. But I want to look at, at three of the names he's given as, and what they're showing us about Jesus. And again, if you're, if you're visiting... Okay, here comes the sermon. Intro, intro, here comes the sermon. But if, if you're visiting, this is, this is one of the most important things I've been pounding on about Revelation. The first sentence of the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And when you get that, what we've been trying to say over and over is that's not John giving you the title. We treat it like a title. It's the topic. The book is a revealing of Jesus Christ. It is not to get us wrapped around the axle about news events and who's mad at Israel and can they put chips in you and do any of them have 666 on. That's not the main point. The main point is to show us Jesus. 
So, all right, what are we being shown about Jesus in this text? What are the three names we want to look at? First off, faithful and true. Second, the Word of God. Third, King of kings and Lord of lords. All right, faithful and true. The Word of God. King of kings, Lord of lords. Now, first off, faithful and true. Look at this in verse. This this comes right at the beginning of the text. Verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened. This has happened uh, several times in Revelation. And a lot of scholars think this this is like an entirely different unpacking of an angle of what's being developed in Revelation. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Think war horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now, when it says that the one seated on the horse, Jesus Christ, that his name is faithful and true, what does that mean? And the simplest way to start would be he's the opposite of what's fake. He's the opposite of what's false. And I tell you, this has been a very interesting thing to learn about, at least for me personally, in studying Revelation. I'm very indebted to a scholar named Vern Poitras for, for helping me understand this a little bit better, that a big deal in Revelation is this way that evil counterfeits the good. That evil doesn't create anything. It doesn't have its own identity, at least in a creative, original way, but it mimics and counterfeits what God and Christ do. Now, how do you see that? A little bit of review here. Uh, We looked at this recently. We saw the whore of Babylon, the great prostitute, and it talks about how she's adorned with gold and pearls and uh, purple and scarlet, and she's very alluring and she's very enticing, and she attracts you toward things that are destructive and that'll hurt you. But you can be enticed because she's adorned. And what's the contrast? Is that you get to the end of Revelation and there's another woman. And she's a bride. She's adorned as a bride. And who is it? It's the bride of Christ. You think, ah. If, that, if, that, if the wicked woman is all that's wrong and fallen about the world that I think I want. No, that's what I want. The love and the acceptance of being married to Christ counterfeit. It's all through the book. Well, there's someone that we met in Revelation 13 called the beast. Not going to preach that sermon again, but there's the beast. The beast is the counterfeit lamb. And when he shows up in chapter 13, what do you see about him? Well, he's got a bunch of crowns, diadems. And he has names written on him. And he's got a lot of power and authority. And it says in chapter 13 that he makes war on the armies of God. You think, oh, he's a pretty impressive figure. He's so impressive, he's so miraculous and powerful that he uh, leads a lot of people astray. You think, wow, maybe he's the real deal. Look at his power, look at his presence. And then you get to chapter 19. And you realize, that was a joke. That's the counterfeit. What's the real deal? Verse 11, the one sitting on it is called faithful. and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now, 
before we move on, how is that helpful to us to see that a name of the risen Christ, the conquering Christ, one of his names is faithful and true. Let's put it this way. Uh, I broached this subject last week and I heard back from a lot of you. And I heard back from some of the community group leaders that this sort of struck a nerve. That as we were developing a point, something that came up last week is that in our culture, we love control. At least we love to feel like we have control, whether that's through diet or exercise or disciplines or being on top of tasks or technology or baby monitors or whatever. We, we want to feel in control. But we said that it's such a priority that we really wouldn't call it just a preference. Control in our culture is sacred. At least the feeling of control is sacred. Now think about this. For first century Christians who are watching the power and the wealth of Rome, no one can stop Rome. If Rome comes after you, you get conquered, just take it like a man. But they get what they want. And what does this image show in these first century Christians? For now. But Rome, in its power, in its might, is a counterfeit Messiah. But one is coming and his name is faithful and true and he is the Messiah that every Roman man, woman, and child in their heart really wanted to be true. Even if they latched their heart to a false Messiah like the Roman culture and the Roman Caesar. But what does it mean for us? It means things like this. We tend to not worship an emperor. We tend to not worship the state. But we worship other things. And you know what? It's great. It's great for you to want to be a productive employee. That's great. It's a good thing to be a productive employee. Scripture commends that. But you know what? It's a, an atrocious Savior. It's a good thing to have an orderly home. That's a blessing. But you don't live in chaos. You live in order. It's an atrocious Savior. What our hearts need and what our hearts crave is the one whose name is faithful and true. He's the real Savior we really want. Now, he has this other name, the Word of God. Uh, verse, second part of verse 13 says that the name by which he is called is the Word of God. What does that mean? Okay, th again, this may be familiar territory to you. But it may be new to you. I don't know. But that saying that a name of Jesus is the same name as the Bible. I mean, yeah, you, would you ever call a person the dictionary? Well, no, not unless they just had a, an unbelievable command of the lexicon. Maybe you'd call them the dictionary. It'd be your way of saying anything you find in the dictionary, that person is and knows. Think about the fact, again, this may be familiar to you, but the name Jesus is given is the name that we call the Bible. He is the Word of God. What is that showing us? And this is a really big deal not only in our church, but this is a very big deal to Jesus. Jesus' critique in his day of people that studied the Bible all the time was never, why do you study the Bible all the time? Ever. 
his critique was, you study the Bible all the time, but you're not seeing the main point that the Scriptures are about what? Me. And no devout first century Jew would have said that. That would have been, that would have been considered blasphemy. But he said it because he is both God and man. That the scriptures that you're studying, the problem is not that you study them. The problem is you don't see that those are the scriptures that are written concerning me. I'm the fulfillment of Genesis and I'm the fulfillment of Malachi. Literally. How do you see that in this text? Um, One of the passages in the Old Testament that's quoted a bunch in the New Testament is Psalm 2. Psalm 2. And it's a psalm... written about a son of a father and the son is being crowned king. The writers in the New Testament quote this psalm a bunch and they apply it to Jesus. What does the psalm talk about? The psalm starts out that there are all these nations and there are all these kings and they're hacked off at God. And they're hacked off actually at God and this other figure, the anointed one. Guess what Messiah means? The anointed one. Guess what Christ means? The anointed one. And the kings and the nations, they gather together against God and against the anointed one. They just say, enough is enough, and they're going to fight against him. And it says that the one in heaven laughs. Because this is so futile. And then he says to his son, I have given you all authority. I'm giving you a rod of iron by which you'll rule the nations. And at the end of the psalm, it talks about kiss the son lest you experience his wrath. That sounds like Revelation 19, that the nations and the kings have stacked up against the Messiah and against his people, and they're going to fight him. And it's no contest. And the Messiah has the rod of iron. And his wrath appears. He is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. How is that helpful to people like you and me? Well, as I said before, a huge deal in our church is to say that everything that we're offering to you, every lesson, every sermon, all that's good about a community group, the sacraments, our singing is only as good in as much as it's not only true to the Bible, but as it's pointing you to Jesus Christ. And that the thing that we would want for any, anyone in this room is the thing that we would want for ourselves. We would want you to have more of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. You may be sitting here this morning going, well, you know what? I've been coming here a while and I've been hearing you say that and I, I still feel flat about the whole thing. There's never one answer for that. That might be because right now something going on with you physiologically that you just you don't feel right right now. That's part of a fallen world. It could be that you're incredibly tired because of the season of life that you're in right now. You know, we have bodies and we get tired and run down. Can I have an amen? Amen. Okay. But uh, but you know it could be that you're coming here almost sort of sitting yourself down saying, okay, now, energize me. I dare you to make me feel closer to God. And here's the thing. No one can make you 
feel a certain way. I can't make me feel a certain way. But if you're going to experience the gospel, you have to move toward Christ. You have to have more of Christ. How do you have more of Christ? Partly through His people, partly through the sacraments when taken by faith. But the great way is through the Scriptures. That the name of Jesus is the Word of God. We experience Him not just through being with other Christians, not just through singing about Him, not just through serving in His name, doing deeds in His name in the world, but we experience Him in this unique way when we experience the Scriptures. And I really do try in my, in my own preaching not to just get up here and say, read your Bibles more for crying out loud. But you know what I'm exhorting you to do? Read your Bible more. And meditate on it. If you open it up and go, I have no idea what this is talking about, then maybe to just get on your knees by your chair or your sofa and say, I don't know what this is talking about. But if this is to help me understand your son, would you help me understand your son? Third thing is this. King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Uh, You know this title from Handel's Messiah, but it is from the Scriptures first. Look down in verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. All right, there's Psalm 2 coming, coming true. And the beast... The counterfeit was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Um, When... When Revelation describes Christ as treading out the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, I'm not totally sure what that means, but the metaphor is that God's enemies are the grapes. This is actually prophesied in Isaiah 63. And this is it's an aspect of who Jesus is that we don't talk about a lot. Let me read you another text. This is written by Paul. It sounds like Old Testament. But listen to this. It says, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. I said it earlier, but let me say it again. The gospel is not saying there is no such thing as divine judgment. The gospel says that the coming divine judgment need not fall on the likes of us who richly deserve it. That if you trust that it fell on the one who's the Word of God, on the Lamb, 
and He absorbs it for you, then it, it will never fall on you. Not because we don't deserve it, but because in love He took it for us, that justice will be satisfied. What are we supposed to do with this? And I, I want to kind of draw this to a conclusion. First off, what, what, what does that do for you if you're here and you're a Christian? You do believe these things. How does that help you, that He's King of kings and Lord of lords? It's funny, this has come up twice this week. This came up in the midweek Bible study. I told uh, the men and the women's Bible studies that I don't really have the physique to back up having a really retaliatory sort of spirit. I don't have the body to back it up. But I, I do have a retaliatory streak. Uh, there was a Harrison Ford movie that came out. I think it was in the 80s. I haven't used nearly enough 80s references lately, so let's, let's kind of reboot that. I think it was 80s, uh, but it was a Harrison Ford movie called uh, Witness, and he's a, he's a cop, and he, he finds out about this high level of police corruption at the highest levels. He finds out about it, and his friend, who's another policeman and, and a colleague and a friend, he found out about it, and the higher-ups found out that he found out about it, and they kill him, and they come after Harrison Ford's character. His name's John Book. So he goes into hiding in an Amish community. But there's this scene where he calls that, the, 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 the top corrupt police official. He calls him at his house when he's at a family cookout. And he gets him on the phone and he says, I'm going to find out what you did to him. And I'm going to do it to you. Now, when I watch a scene like that, I think, I like that. <laughs> I like everything about that. He had it coming. He deserves it. It's Harrison Ford. Count me in. Every, and again, I'm speaking to Christians. I think every person in this, wherever you're coming from spiritually, but let me speak to Christians. Wherever you're coming from, everyone in this room has somebody in your life. And I, maybe I'm wrong, but if you say you don't, I'm just, I just do not believe it. Everyone has someone in your life on whom you would like to have revenge. And what that probably means is they either hurt you very deeply or they hurt someone you love. Uh, they betrayed you. They were unfaithful when they should have been faithful. They were cruel when they should have been loving. Um, they made you stick your neck out financially and then they left you and you took the hit. And just even me bringing it up, you, you feel your temperature beginning to go up and you want revenge. Now, I've got mine and you've got yours. And do you know what is one of the primary, maybe the primary applications in the New Testament of God's vengeance at the end is that we're not to take it. That the followers of Jesus do not need to be the people who call that person who betrayed me and say, I, you know what, I know what you did to me, or I know what you did to my child, or I know what you did to my parent, and I'm going to do it to you. But the reason that we need not do that is, is not because we're the nice people, and that's not nice, so let's be nice, let's close in prayer. That's not it. It's because the retribution, the retaliation, the pure justice, not tainted justice will be by His hand at the end. 
everything will be put on the jumbotron and dealt with purely and righteously and justly. You and I need not take vengeance. Do not take vengeance on the person who betrays you. And one day when I want to take it on somebody, you tell me the same. But let me end with this. What if you're here and you don't know? You, you're not a Christian. You, or, or you don't know what you are, but you're pretty sure you're not a Christian. Or maybe you know you're not. Let me end with this briefly and we're done. At the end of that psalm that I mentioned to you, Psalm 2, it talks about this, this, uh, this son who's a king and he has a rod of iron and his anger. The end of that psalm is fascinating. The psalmist says, so what do you do with a guy who has a rod of iron and he rules the nations and no one can stop him and God laughs at anybody trying to challenge him. What do you do with somebody like that? And do you know what the psalmist says? He says, kiss him. At the end of Psalm 2, he says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Not run from the son, avoid the son. Go to him and kiss him. And then the end of the psalm says this, Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. There's a wonderful Old Testament scholar named Derek Kidner, and he said, there's no refuge from Him. There's only refuge in Him. In my exhortation to you, especially before we come to this table, and in some ways Jake is going to say the same thing, When the risen Christ comes on his war horse and all the world sees him, there is no refuge from him. But I, my hope and our church, church's hope for you is that you need not be terrified when he comes. There'll be no refuge from him. There's refuge in him. Go to him. Say, I don't even understand what all you did, but if, if you're the answer to my sin... And what's wrong with me? And you're the answer to this amazing but fallen and shattered world. If you're the answer, then just enable me to trust you. Enable me to believe you and follow you. And you know what you'll be doing? You'll have refuge in Him. And that's good news. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we pray that even as we've just seen these, um, these vivid images and these startling figures, that on the one hand, we won't um, lose heart. We would pray that no man or woman or child in this room would lose heart, thinking, well, if, if that's what happens to the people who sin, then I, I'm doomed. But Father... Please help us uh, also not to explain it away. Just even as these things will be true when the sensations from the sermon die away and we have our lunch and we go to work tomorrow and we live our lives, that these things are true. So please put them in our hearts. And may we seek after the precious Lord Jesus, find refuge in Him, the one who's faithful and true. And we pray in His name. Amen.